Father, we want to thank you that you have given us life in Christ. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would fill us, you would take control and open up our minds now as we sit before you. As the word is open, we pray that you would speak through me into the hearts of those who are here and everyone under the sound of my voice. Lord, take this word, make it stick, and may we live it out for your honor, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Well, during my time in the Air Force, many moons ago, I actually had three jobs. And my first job was a B-52 bombing navigation mechanic. I spent a lot of time on the flight line because the really skilled guys were in the shop operating on the components. And I was part of the team who did the grunt work out on the aircraft. Well, sometimes we were called aircraft that was on alert status. These planes were fully armed. And they were guarded by security force personnel, locked and loaded, of course. One thing that set these planes apart from the rest of the aircraft on the flight line was a red stripe of paint on the ground. Absolutely no one could cross that line without authorization. If even the base commander dared to cross that line, security forces would take him down in a New York second. Kiss the pavement was the affectionate term for this. Ask the base commander who actually experienced this. Everybody had to process through what was called the ECP, the entry control point if they wanted to gain access to the aircraft. Security force personnel would process everybody that needed to go in the aircraft, including the aircrew, and only then can someone gain access to the fully loaded aircraft. The line on the pavement indeed was a thin one. There was nothing different about the pavement inside versus outside the marked-off area. The pavement was exactly the same regardless of which side a person stood. The difference, though, lie in what it meant to transgress that line. To cross a line could spell the difference between life and death, literally. Don't cross that line. You do so at your own peril. That's the message. There is no mercy for the line crosser. If you stay on the proper side of the line, all will be well with you. But if you transgress the line, trouble of your own making will arrive quick, fast, and in a hurry. Well, I spent a little time kind of describing here how important some lines are and how dangerous things can be to cross them. And today I want to talk about lines in relation to the holiness of God regarding God's people. In our passage for today, we're going to see a number of lines and a circle that Yahweh, through Moses, has drawn for his people in showing them how to live. Holy boundary markers, if you will. As we get started, let me emphasize, though, these lines and circles that we're going to see here are for God's people. And I can't stress this enough. God's rules, his statutes and commandments were not given to the world. God gave his Torah to Israel only after he rescued them from Egypt. Only after he told them in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, we said this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God saved his people by his grace. And then he gave them his laws, his rules, his commandments of how to live. Whether Old Testament or New Testament saints, God's pattern has always been the same. Salvation by his grace first, and then living loyal, obedient, 
grateful lives unto him after that. So in our passage for today, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 1 to 30, we're going to find some things that are going to sound really weird. (laughs) As if it already hasn't been weird enough in Deuteronomy. We're going to find some things that speak directly to our current culture. And other things are going to say without a doubt, are you kidding me? Now, there are 14 scenarios and laws that we're going to go through today. we got a lot to cover. Now, we're not going to spend much time on, on any one of them because they're pretty straightforward, not a whole lot to unpack. But they are, for the most part, lacking the cultural context. And so I'm going to briefly explain the context. I'm going to seek to make an application here and there, and then we're going to move on to the next one. Like last week, we're going to go pretty quickly through these verses. And I encourage you to take the manuscript and study them at home at your leisure. And even though we're going to move quickly, there is valuable truth that we can mine from these verses as we go through them. We need to remember that Deuteronomy 22, 1 to 30 is inspired scripture. It's as inspired as Genesis 1, 1 or even John 3, 16. Remember what Paul told Timothy about the entirety of Holy Scripture in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It was Dwight Moody who said, the Bible was not given to us to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. The Scripture, by the power of His Spirit, is useful to change us, not merely to inform us. Let's allow the Spirit of God to help us approach and to use Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 1 to 30, as the divinely inspired scripture that it is. And so you won't just hear me rambling on and on. I've asked Don and Desiree to help me today. They're going to help read the chapter. So if you'll turn again to Deuteronomy 22, 1 to 30, if you haven't done so already, go ahead and do that. It's found on page 182 in your pew Bible, if you need that number. And so let's read verses 1 to 4 of Deuteronomy 22. So Don, go ahead and read that, if you will. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. Well, the line that the Lord drew in this scenario is clear. It's the line of contentment regarding personal property. There are no finder's keeper's clause here among God's people. Personal property rights are what the Lord approves of and what he mandates. See, what are the eighth and the tenth words of the Ten Commandments? You shall not steal is the eighth one. And the tenth one is that you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, don't mix God's provision given to your brother with your own. Be satisfied with what you have. The property of others is not yours. Don't live as though they are. So now let's read verse 5. A woman should not wear a man's garment, 
nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Does this not go directly to the heart of what's going on nowadays? This is line number two drawn by Yahweh for his people. It is a line of identity that separates the sexes. It is God who tells us who and whose they and we are. Yahweh tells his people through Moses to separate themselves from the pagan practice of transvestism. Men's things are men's things, and women's things are women's things. This command is literally rendered this way in the original language. A woman shall not wear that which pertains to a man, meaning this, as an instruments or weapons or clothing. And a man shall not put on women's garments, period. God condemns transvestism for a couple of reasons. First, because of the direct ties to homosexuality, for homosexuality is called an abomination, just like he's calling this an abomination. Second, the Lord condemns transvestism because of its direct ties to pagan worship. Craig Keener and John Walton write these words regarding this practice. In Mesopotamian literature, the goddess Ishtar is androgynous, marginal, and ambiguous. She shatters the boundaries of male-female, of war-love, of divine-human, and more. Among the Hittites, they continue, males captured by the Hittites had their manhood shamefully insulted and removed by being dressed to look like women, and they were forced to do women's work. Another writer adds this, the symbols of gender difference were to be respected. Violations of the created order, such as homosexuality and bestiality, are an abomination. So what is an abomination? In large measure, an abomination refers to that which is repugnant to Yahweh. Repugnant, of course, means things that are extremely distasteful to him. They are unacceptable, in conflict, and incompatible with the Lord. In other words, God absolutely rejects homosexuality in all of its forms. And no, no one is ever born this way, regardless of how they feel. There is no such thing as a so-called gay gene. Conclusive research bears this out. I'm well aware that this is not a popular view in culture and increasing measure even in the church. But no matter, what we've just read is inspired scripture. God's perspective has never changed. Homosexuality, to include transvestism, is an abomination. The Lord has always considered blurring of the hard boundaries between the sexes as something repugnant to him. However, this statute given by Yahweh to, through Moses to his people is given, again, to his people. It's not given to those who are not God's people. Now, does that mean that we get into the faces of those who are not God's people and condemn those who are in the homosexual lifestyle? No, we don't do that. But in our culture, what can we do? We can work toward having our representatives pass laws prohibiting openly practicing homosexuality in our society as it once was until fairly recently. 
We can personally refrain from supporting these kinds of things in our culture, such as working to eliminate the scourge of the drag queen story hour in our public libraries. On a personal level, we can counter the narrative. For example, when people tell us, you just can't legislate morality, what can we say? Every law is a reflection of someone's morality. Isn't that right? And so the question is, whose morality do you want to live under? We counter the lies with truth and let the chips fall where they may. The bottom line here is that the culture loves all things homosexuality simply because the culture's movers and shakers are at war with God. And it's only as culture's movers and shakers receive salvation and loyally follow Jesus is that homosexuality will fall out of favor with the culture. So we see Yahweh's drawn lines of contentment and identity. Let's read verses 6 to 7 to see the next line. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. So what is this line? That God's people live contentedly in the provision he gave them for their daily bread. God's people are to live on the side of the line that separates what he has provided versus what his people crave. Yahweh says, take the eggs, take the chicks. They are food for you, but don't take the producer of the eggs. But human nature being what it is, how many, even amongst God's people, rise up in anger and indignation and say, you can't tell me what to eat. I'll eat whatever I want. You ever know people like that? You ever do that? But what has God graciously provided in this scenario? Let's look again at verse 6. If you come across a bird's nest, that's how it begins. See, God has opened your eyes to the nest in the first place. Yahweh's people, be content with his provision in the manner and in the way that he has provided. And for us today, It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how, isn't it? How has God provided for you and for me in your life? Rejoice in his provision for our daily bread. Be content with the fact that he has provided for you and for me today. Now Don's going to read verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone shall fall from it. So, what's a parapet? Kind of sounds a weird name, isn't it? It is a railing that goes around the perimeter of a roof. So, why build that? Well, because the standard way of building houses back in the day was that everyone had flat roofs. Think rooftop terrace. Even today, any open structure, if if I got the code right, any open structure three feet or higher requires a parapet around it so people don't fall off. So what, in essence, is the Lord saying here in regards to a parapet? God's people were to consider the safety of their friends and neighbors even more significant than their own needs. Kind of sounds like a little Philippians 2, uh, 3 and 4 action here, right? 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So in this case, instead of seeing Yahweh drawing a line, we can think of Yahweh drawing a circle. As Yahweh's redeemed people, they were to love their neighbors as themselves. Where have we heard that before? See, their circle of love was to expand. They were to include in their circle more images of God than just themselves. The builder of the house was to take the time and invest and put more resources into making sure that others were protected from avoidable harm. In this case, it was falling off a roof. Love is a verb, you know. So let's look at another line of Yahweh that of maximum productivity by applying his wisdom. Verses 9 to 11, Don. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of, of wool and linen mixed together. Isn't that weird? Weird verses. But notice in these verses, a single theme. And the single theme is one, one kind of seed in a vineyard instead of more, plowing with one kind of animal and not two in the yoke, making cloth of one kind of material and not two. Now, scholars are all over the map as to what this is all about. So let's narrow it down to one issue. God's wisdom is the best way for his people in the here and now as we apply it. In these scenarios, Not applying these rules greatly hinders success in their daily plans. Planting two kinds of seeds, as in grape seeds and wheat seeds together, is a disaster when you try to harvest. How can harvest grain and grapes efficiently at the same time? Plowing with an ox and a donkey would drastically slow things down as far as plowing. It's in my understanding that making cloth with wool and linen instead of just wool or linen, causes the garment to wear out prematurely. And here's where God's people can actually hinder God's blessings. God promised bumper crop after bumper crop if they would do things his way. Mixture of seeds, mixture of breeds, and mixture of weaves all serve significantly to slow things down. If crops are sown and plowed far less efficiently, and if clothing wears out prematurely, then where are the bumper crops? The bottom line here is that things always go better when God's people apply his wisdom to their lives. So what are some biblical principles that we can apply here in our day concerning biblical wisdom? Let me give you two. First, be prepared for emergencies. Now, we think about what's going on today. And if we can believe What comes out of the faces of these journalists, so-called, these media people? What are they telling us? Rolling blackouts, increasing prices, and so much more tell us that we need to get ready for what's coming. We need to buckle up, don't we? If possible, we need to put aside a little now if you're not already doing it, so that should the hard times come, we'll be able to be prepared to help others and to help ourselves. Second, We need to eliminate as much debt as possible, especially if you have a variable rate credit card. Current mortgage rate, for example, in Virginia is what? Over 5%. It was just a little bit ago, about a year ago, right? It was about 2%. 
It's more than double. According to LendingTree, in June, the average interest rate for credit cards was over 20%. According to many, we haven't seen anything yet. And we haven't even talked about energy prices. We need to put some things aside so that we can be prepared. God's ways are indeed the best. Let's be wise as we implement God's wisdom in our lives. Now, in verse 12, Moses drew another line for Yahweh's people, that is, wearing tassels on their clothing. So Don's going to read that verse for us. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. What in the world is that all about? (laughs) Crazy, isn't it? This is a line of spiritual identity. It's a line of separation between loyalty to the Lord and that of other gods. How can wearing tassels do this? Well, Numbers, in Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 and 39, Moses teaches this to his people. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. It's a reminder to obey the Lord. That's what these tassels are all about. In short, God's people were to wear tassels to remind them that they are indeed his people. And as such, they were to display their loyalty to Yahweh by outward obedience to his ways. But here's a caveat. If Israel was to wear tassels, everybody sees them, including the pagans. All eyes are on God's people. And so what did that mean? And what does that look like? Well, it's similar to the tassels that we wear today. Did you know that we wear tassels? If we advertise that we are followers of Christ, we had better live it out. Because the moment we advertise that we're Christians, what happens? Everybody watches. All eyes are on us. So what are some of our tassels? What are some of our external displays that we follow the Lord? For some, bumper stickers. For others, it's more than an adequate tip at the restaurant. Opening doors for people. It's kind of gone by the wayside, but we need to be doing that, right? It's a courtesy. Eye contact and meeting fellow imagers of God, regardless of of where they stand with the Lord. When we wear T-shirts with with distinctively Christian images and, and messages, we are walking billboards, aren't we? Especially if we wear Grace United T-shirts. All of these things can be helpful or they can distract. For example, if you have a Christian bumper sticker, don't drive like a maniac. If you're advertising Christ by wearing a T-shirt with a distinctively Christian message on it and go to a restaurant, don't rip off the wait staff. Give them an extra tip. In short, wear your tassel boldly, but don't wear it in vain. Wear it worthily. Now, the rest of the laws and scenarios in Deuteronomy 22 have to do with sexual purity. In various ways, there is one line that Yahweh drew in the rest of these verses. It's that line that between faithfulness and unfaithfulness in sexual relationships among his people. And so the next voice you're going to hear accompany me is Desiree's. The first segment of the line among God's people between faithfulness and unfaithfulness in sexual relationships 
has to do with the alleged infidelity from groom to bride. So let's read verses 13, 21. If any man takes a wife and goes to her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman. Because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife. He may not divorce, divorce her for all his days. But if the thing is true that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. What we have here is either a clueless evil husband or a deceptive wife. This is something that must be dealt with. The situation will be resolved in one or two ways. Either the husband is wrong and brings the bad name on a virgin of Israel, or the wife is found guilty of whoring in her father's house. A serious charge indeed. How to proceed? Go to court. Prove the case. The elders are to hear the complaints. But it's more than just a he said, she said thing. Evidence is needed. And what's the evidence? It's the wedding night sheets, of course. You ever keep your wedding night sheets? They say the sheets or the ESV has it, the cloak. It was a custom to guard against situations just like this one. The case is brought before the elders who are serving as judge and jury. And mom and dad and daughter present their case. They show the evidence by spreading out the wedding night sheet in front of the judge and the jury. All these elders, the men, case closed. There's the evidence right there. The elders then whip the husband, find him what's equivalent to about 800 bucks in today's money, and then forbid him from divorcing his wife all the rest of her days and his days. He must spend the rest of his life providing for her under the watchful eye of in-laws. Now, what would life be like for that husband? <laughs> On the other hand, what if the husband is right? What if mom and dad had either not received the wedding sheet or they misplaced it? Or what if the wife is indeed promiscuous? There's no evidence of her virginity. No appeal allowed. No mistrial pronounced. No simply believing her just because she is a woman. If there's no evidence, then all the men of the city shall pick up a stone and she dies. Rough system. These are the ground rules. And the verdict is final. And it ends when the, either the husband is punished 
or the wife is dead. Either way, Yahweh says evil is purged. And it looks like the timeline for justice is pretty short. Justice is swift in this case. And in our day, what if justice was swift? How much crime will be deterred? Because justice is delayed in our day, crime has a tendency to run rampant. And we know this, don't we? Well, let's try Israel's system of justice on Versailles, shall we? Now, I have a hunch that our culture would be much better off if we did that. The next segment of Yahweh's line of sexual purity is found in verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So what's the case here? Both partners in adultery are to die. According to Yahweh through Moses, this is how evil is purged. In a nutshell, adultery pollutes the land, and God says, I want a clean land morally. So any story in the New Testament kind of comes to mind here? Remember when the Pharisees caught a woman in adultery, brought her to Jesus, and Jesus stooped down on the ground? Ever wonder what Jesus was writing there? Maybe a question like, where's the dude? Perhaps Jesus suspected that one of the Pharisees may have set her up. Or perhaps one of them may have been guilty of committing adultery with her. Because how did they know that she was committing adultery? What's her bedroom bug? Closed circuit TV? How did they know? Perhaps it would have been a different scenario if both of the sinning parties were brought. The bottom line is that adultery between two consenting adults was an evil thing that must be purged. This is not how Yahweh's people are to be. Faithfulness to one's spouse is the name of the game here. Third segment of the faithfulness slash unfaithfulness line that Yahweh drew for his people is found in verses 23 and 24. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in a city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. We have here an adultery slash fornication combo. City style. Notice that the girl is betrothed. Now we know what this means, right? She is legally married, although the marriage isn't consummated yet. We don't know the marital status of the guy. And I assume he's a single guy. But what we do know is that the guy met the girl, quote, in the city, and he laid with her. We can liken this scenario to a situation where the girl kind of lost herself. And to use a dated term, he swept her off her feet, and they had a time of intimacy. No harm, no foul, right? No one knows. Au contraire. Not at all. However they were found out, the couple indeed was found out, and both were to die. Both were stoned to death at the gate, the place where legal matters were conducted. The wife was to die because she did not do anything to stop the guy. How do we know that? Because if she would have cried out, if she would have screamed, somebody would have heard and somebody would come to her rescue. The guy is stoned because he did what? He violated his neighbor's wife. This is another sexual sin that pollutes the land. And Yahweh said, 
it must be purged. In verses 25 to 27, we have the case of sexual violation in the country. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Well, it appears that in this scenario, it's the same kind of thing that we just read, but there are major differences. First, the violation takes place in the country, away from people in the town. The betrothed or married woman and the man are alone. The man takes her by force. He seizes her. In other words, he rapes her. He violated the married woman. But notice the man dies and the woman walks in this scenario. The assumption probably made by the elders is that she did scream for help, but there was no one there to help her. In this case, the woman was presumed innocent without evidence. Now, this is refreshing. So when you think about it, See, in this case, listed in the Torah, the testimony of an Israelite woman was accepted as true. This communicates loud and clear that the status of women is given a higher place in Scripture than we sometimes think of as we read Scripture. God cannot lie, said it best when he said it in Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God himself said that women and men have equal status in his eyes from the get-go. There are two more segments of the line of sexual purity left to draw. One is found in Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 and 29. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to her father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her for all of his days. The issue here is two single people. She's not betrothed. Apparently, tragically, it appears that he raped her in this scenario as well. Verse 28, he seizes her, takes her by force. Again, the onus is upon the man here. He's responsible for this. So what does he do? He has to pay about 400 bucks to her dad. He must marry her and never get a divorce. Again, under the watchful eye of in-laws. What do you think his life is going to be like? Do you think that he might take a little responsibility here as in the new husband? I think so. But a little side note here. In our day, if even this one scenario was carried out, how much better would our culture be? It is a known sociological fact that fatherless homes are some of the main causes, if not the main cause, of so many problems in our culture. If the man is going to mess around, the man needs to man up and take his rightful place as head of the home. And I'm thinking, you know, young guys, make sure that you live the life that the Lord would have you to live. He is to commit himself to living out the role that God gave him as lifelong husband and dad and granddad. In our last segment for the sexual purity line, drawn among 
Yahweh's people is found in verse 30. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Because of our lack of time, can't go into it much, but I will only mention this. The context is one of the son's stepmother, not one who bore him. Remember, there was polygamy in those days. And second, uncovering his father's nakedness was a bad thing. Would we agree? Simply put, it was a heinous way of breaking the fifth commandment, honoring parents. By taking his father's wife, it was a major act of dishonoring his dad. Remember the culture Moses State did not view marriage the way we do. Rarely did they marry for love. And the majority of the time they married for a legacy building or economic reasons. In this scenario, the son cannot marry one of his father's stepmothers. And that, I'm sure and convinced, is something we can all agree with. So we spent a lot of time in the air today, and so I want to land this plane kind of quick. Today we saw how God has drawn the line regarding how his people are to behave. And he's done it for a reason, one reason he's done this, that he might show the nations how good he is. That he might show them how superior and beneficial are his ways compared to the way they live. As God's people faithfully stay behind the lines and within the circle of holiness, Yahweh extends a message to have the nations an invitation to allow them to come and be part of his people. Remember what Moses said regarding the ways of the Lord in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. I want you to turn there because I want you to see these words in the text or just follow along in your manuscript. Again, Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8. This is really, really good stuff as why we have the law here, as why we have the Torah here. It's not just God just giving us laws arbitrarily. These are for a reason. See, I have taught you rules and statutes as the Lord my God commanded me. Why? That you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. This is for a witness who when they hear all these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? That's why God gave his people the Torah for a witness. His ways are superior. And so as we stay behind the lines that we talked about today, preventing us from coveting our neighbor's property, as we believe the identity that God has given us, as we contentedly rest in his provision, as we love our neighbor in practical ways, as we seek the Lord for wisdom in the here and now, and as we refrain from falsely accusing others, especially our husband or wife, and as we maintain sexual purity, we will live in a way that's not only countercultural, but in a way that shows the pagans his ways are superior than theirs. And since this is Independence Day weekend, I want to end our, our message today with a patriotic flair. Author David Burgess said this of Stonewall Jackson. How he got his name? I didn't realize this. General Jackson feared God, and he feared nothing else. When the Confederates were falling back at Bull Run or Manassas, General Lee rallied his men by calling out, look to Jackson. 
There he stands like a stone wall. That made Jackson famous in the South and in the North and in history. As we live God's ways in our increasingly hostile culture, so we as followers of Jesus are to stand firm as a wall against the temptations and battles of life and everything the culture throws at us. We're going to have enemies. We're not going to be liked on Facebook as much. We're going to be banned from Twitter and all that kind of stuff. We may lose friends and even risk losing our livelihood. But remember our general who said this in Mark 8, 36 through 38. For what is a profit a man, a woman, a young person, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That strong word of encouragement from our captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for this strong medicine that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us boundaries. Because, Lord, you tell us in your word that our hearts are deceitful. Above all things, desperately sick. Who can know it? Lord, we don't know our own selves. Lord, you know us much better than we do. And, Lord, you've taken us, those who know you, and even more importantly, Lord Jesus, those who you know, adopt them in the family. And then you tell us how to live for your glory, for your honor. Lord, as the people out there see this, as they see our unity, as they see us wanting to follow hard after you, Lord, they may, hopefully, some of them will say, I want me some of that. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be faithful, not for our own sake, not because we are afraid that you're going to zap us if we don't or we aren't, but, Lord, that we can set the witness Lord, our desire is that we would make you look good, that we would glorify you in our actions, in our attitudes. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Deuteronomy. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Now, Lord, I pray as we turn our attention to our giving and to our singing, Lord, that you will help us to do these two acts of ministry, these two acts of worship, worthy of you. So we thank you, Father, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.